Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you, we figure out what your operations are, we figure out what your processes are, we figure out what your team doesn't like to do, and we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do, it's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. I've got Francis Pedrasa here, and we are going to go into a few of the different business units uh, and kind of really dive deep into why we're doing it at Invisible, why we're creating Infinity, uh, and why we're doing all of these business units. So welcome to the show, Francis. I love being here. This is my favorite place and favorite time, digitally speaking. Because we are not in the same place. I'm currently in Argentina. And if you want to share, where are you? I would love to share where I am. I'm at the Marucci Mountain Club. And this is my view. Wow. Which mountain? Can you see it? I can't see it. Which mountain is it in? <laughs> I am sitting on, so to speak. I'm sitting on Doi Suthep, which is the mountain that frames Chiang Mai. It's the main mountain, and it's a national park. And I'm literally on the other side of the mountain from Chiang Mai. Um, I'm in an area called May Rim, which I think is going to be the next digital nomad hotspot, but currently is undiscovered. And I could go on and on about it, Stuart. I don't know if we want to send the yeah, podcast in that direction, but I think it would be, I think it would be, I think even like five minutes on the whole digital nomad remote work thing, because Invisible has been remote work from day one. And I feel like I'm just doing what I always wanted to do when I started the company which is um, actually test the limits of what kind of world we can build. Let's go into it. What kind of world can we build? Right. Well, think about what's happening. You're in Argentina. You're in Buenos Aires. I'm in Chiang Mai. We're working for a Delaware C corporation. We have 100 partners, by the way. Big announcement. We crossed 100 partners. Holy moly. Um, and... We have a profitable company that's scaling to a hundred mil run rate by end of year. Um, that's going, you know, approaching its third year of profitability, um, approaching the end of its third year of profitability. Um, and we've done this all with, you know, $7 million of capital, six, you know, 6 million was used before profitability, uh, 8 million to date. Um, we've returned 15 million of capital to investors already. Um, uh, and um, we're scaling faster than our com main competitor, uh, which uh, raised over $600 million and is just has lost money its whole existence. Um, and, and I'm, and we have almost 3,000 people. Uh, we're approaching 3,000 people, uh, you know, 2,500 agents scaling rapidly. Um, 
and I'm doing this all like no, nobody's physically around me here. Uh, we have one agent in Chiang Mai, Drishti. Uh, hi, Drishti, if you're listening. Uh, she's uh, Canadian and um, so cool. Uh, fellow digital nomad. Uh, my cost of living here is um, $1,000 a month cheaper than my studio apartment in New York, except don't tell anyone. I'm staying at a four and a half star resort. <laughs> Uh, the quality of living is so much higher. Um, and so I just think, you know, I know that Seb and some of our other partners have been digital nomads for a long time. You've been a digital nomad for a while. I mean, you actually speak Portuguese. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's the first time actually seeing the arbitrage. And boy, I love arbitrage. Like arbitrage is built into the whole outsider's Thorndike philosophy of how to run a great business and how to deliver long-term shareholder IRR. It's also a great life philosophy, you know, um, in the Tao Te Ching, uh, one of the most memorable lines is, um, uh, is to be like water. And, um, that's the Bruce Lee version of it, but the ancient version of it is, uh, I've been practicing with my Chinese teacher. Shang Shan rule Shui. The supreme good is like water. And there's nothing more like representative of an arbitrage in nature than something that always flows from high to low. Um, and so if New York City cost of living is insanely high, taxes are high, um, inflation is high. Um, and then as a result, your purchasing power is low. Um, then you come here and you literally flip. It's like doing a headstand or something. Um, you have super high uh, uh, quality of living. Uh, everything is so cheap. The most incredible restaurants, the most, you know, it's so peaceful. People, instead of tap to pay, it's bow to pay. People are so nice. Um, and everywhere you go, there's like new adventures, waterfalls, temples. And um, <laughs> uh, and then the cost of living is so, you're just saving so much money. I gave up my lease in New York. And now I actually like get to, you know, pay off my college debt every month. So, and we could, we could actually turn this into a conversation about one of the business units specifically, because uh, arbitrage yeah. is something I'm thinking a lot about. I, I just ended up in Buenos Aires, Argentina, um, and I've lived in Chiang Mai before. Chiang Mai is very cheap, I, but I wonder that it, it might even be cheaper here in Buenos Aires now. Um, but probably yeah. the, 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 it's the quality. Because Thailand's, Thailand's better run. Yes. In Argentina. <laughs> yes, yes. Argentina yes. has yeah. not had a great economic history the last couple of decades. It's been pretty, yeah. pretty tough times. And actually and they're, they're going through quite a, quite a lot of change right now, as you know, as, as I'm very aware and you can feel it around, around as well. Like you, the, the energy here is very, very interesting. Um, but uh, essentially like the quality that you can get in Buenos Aires, this is like a fully European city in all but geography. Um, uh, at an in interesting price, but also part of the plan, although we are fully remote, is to also find Argentines who are uh, really willing to work for dollars, basically, so I can find very quality yeah. people here um, at a good price, while my burn rate is very low, uh, and also based, so it's it feels like a great arbitrage opportunity, basically. And I feel like... Uh... There's this sense in Latin America of um, the internet and uh, in, um, internet work opportunities connecting you to like global entrepreneurship and like a global technology industry. I hear an echo. And um, 
that uh, that's kind of like a revolution, an entrepreneurial revolution, um, which we are a part of, right? Um, and if we can extend access to a global network and global opportunities and global clients and global everything, then even though you're in a country with high inflation or um, just a dysfunctional regime, you can still um, you can still uh, become a you know global high income earner in a meritocratic organization. And that will be cool to find the people. I actually just my one of my Uber drivers. I was thinking about him. He's a young guy, very charismatic. Uh, would be very good at sales. Really good English. And I was thinking, man, this yeah. guy, this guy would be would be perfect. I know. Have. You just feel it sometimes. You're like, this is talent. You just need an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I know. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. Um, well, great. Let's so let's get started on some of these business units. Our last p- podcast episode published a, a week ago was about why we're d- taking different business units and uh, just kind of a quick rundown for that. We're trying to solve the innovator's dilemma by uh, not by diversifying into wholly autonomous business units and going capturing different markets to essentially de-risk the main business. Um, but now, do you have anyone you want, one of the maybe six business units that we have uh, all launching off right now, do you have any that you really want to talk about? So in previous episodes, we covered why infinity. Um, and we, I believe we did one on visionary ventures. Did we? Yeah. Yep. 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 And have we done any others? Did we do ascendancy? Uh, we did not. I, no, it was ascendancy. That is the uh, kind of the consulting one, right? Consulting. Yeah. yeah McKinsey, Bain, BCG yeah. competitor. Yes, yes we did right? do that. So um, Visionary Ventures doesn't have a founding team yet. We're looking for our first two co-founders. We're looking for, um, you know, a CEO and then one other position. Uh, so if anyone knows anyone who's listening, we're going to start uh, a VC fund to disrupt the VC game um, and to play the sovereignty game. Um, and, and then ascendancy, we do have a co-founder, Serana. Serana has been building it since January and done an incredible job. And her first product has been the ascendancy alliances network, which is our first trademark too. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. and we're going to, uh, try to network together, uh, all of our, uh, uh, any business that wants to join the alliance. Um, and they're all going to have access to a shared advisor network. Um, and we are willing to work, uh, as a, um, strategic consultancy and an advisory uh, service uh, for any combination of cash and equity that makes sense. Although we prefer equity and we 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 l- want to be holistic long term partners um, for companies, and we're going after classic innovators dis- di- dilemma disruption strategy. You know the innovators dilemma. For those who haven't read Clayton Christensen's book, has many concepts. One of them is, um, you know, if uh, you know you're the biggest PC company you tend to miss out on the mobile revolution. Or if you're the biggest mainframe company, you tend to miss out on the PC revolution. Um, so the way you disrupt disruption theory, the way you disrupt uh, a, a giant incumbent that seems unattackable, unassailable, um, against the might of Mordor, uh, nobody stands a chance, right? Wrong. Um, you know, even a little hobbit can take on Mordor. Uh, and the way the way this little hobbit, Ascendancy, is uh, is is challenging McKinsey, Bain, and BCG for supremacy of the throne of strategy consulting and advisory. These are the biggest services firms in the world in that in that um, vertical in the strategy consulting and advisory um, space. Uh, the reason why we can challenge them is we're going after clients that they would never touch because they're too small, like startups. 
Series A companies, Series B companies, Series C companies, um, uh, SMBs, mid-market. Um, and we are thinking about our relationship with these companies like an investor. We need to cover our cash costs, but most of our uh, upside and the way we make real profits is doing at-risk work for equity. Um, so we're building a portfolio like a venture fund. Um, and we already have uh, Invisible's advisor network, which is a huge source of alpha and the reason why we've scaled to nearly a hundred million dollar run rate without a sales team. Like we we have we have salespeople, but the best salespeople don't have sales in their titles. So, you know, our uh, most of our sellers in Invisible are uh, invisible partners and invisible advisors. Um, and that's why we've had such capital efficient growth. Um, <laughs> uh, so much more capital efficient than our competitors and so much less disruptive, disrupt, d- dilutive and disru- destructive to shareholder value. So that's all been as a result of ascendancy. Um, and that mindset, that philosophy that we built, you know, that we were pursuing even before Serana came in to just, in, you know, industrialize it and help us spin it out. So if anyone's interested in co-founding that company, with Serana and I, um, you know, contact us. Uh, just email um, uh, Keats at EverestAssistant.com. Keats is my Everest Assistant. Um, Keats at EverestAssistant.com with your cover letter about wh- why you want to join Ascendancy and, and be considered as a co-founder. And Serana and I will will uh, take a look. Cool. So I think that that goes directly into the one we should talk about, which is Everest, I think, because Everest is is the the whole reason we met in 2012 in San Francisco was because yeah. you, were, you were you were starting a company called Everest, and I went to the yeah. start I went to the startup party uh, that you guys threw, which was really a wild time to be in San Francisco. That was such a such an interesting yeah. interesting time. Uh, but I remember you had this amazing party in this warehouse. I think it was in Soma or something like that. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think we met there, and you were you were talking about Everest, and here it is again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so can you just say that again, make sure the audience understands it was a real company yeah. and it had a whole different team and, 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 um, our biggest investor by far, Brian Oliver, um, you know, put in almost $700,000, uh, a perfect number of his own personal wealth and lost it. The company wow. went to zero. We yeah. raised, we raised nearly $3 million. Um, Peter Thiel, Bono, uh, these were investors in our company. Um, and, uh, our intention, by the way, is any former Everest shareholder that I'm not currently in touch with, I've tried to reach out to all former Everest shareholders. I'll get you back on the cap table. I'll do right by you. I'm going to try to get you one X at least, if not, not more. Um, but we're restarting the company. Um, why? Because I learned a lot the first time around. I was like a kid, you know, it was like another lifetime. I was right out of college. Um, and I made a bunch of mistakes that I wouldn't make now. Um, and since then I've had tons of years to think about it. And I've got a much better network and much more capital behind me and our, and our overall, uh, you know, loyal shareholder base. And, um, uh, you know, Invisible's already uh, doubled uh, investor capital um, in re- actual liquid returns. And, um, and in terms of um, enterprise value, uh, we're out in the market right now. So we'll see where the market prices us. But, you know, we're hoping for at least a five to 10x um, on revenue, which would be $500 million to a billion dollar valuation. So we're either a unicorn already or approaching it. Um, and, um, and profitable three, you know, three years in, um, you know, invisible has its challenges and its opportunities to overcome. And like, it's still a full-time job. It's it's insanely difficult to scale an organization this fast. We're on track to 4X revenue this year. Um, yeah, but 
um, uh, the, um, you know, even though it's taking, you know, still 12 hours, 14 hours, 16 hour days, even 18 hour days sometimes, um, uh, there, there's enough free time uh, on weekends <laughs> for me to like hire a co-founder and put capital to work. And so that's what I did. It's a crazy story about how we refounded Everest. You just want like these stories are, you'd think that I'm making them up, except it's true. Um, on New Year's Eve, where do I find myself? Not my own idea, by the way. I find myself in Copenhagen. Why am I in Copenhagen, Denmark? Well, I'd read the the Lego book, Brick by Brick, because one of our board members, uh, Eduardo Tamraz, recommended it. It's incredible history of Lego, which I love Lego as a kid growing up. It was like my favorite thing, organization, you know, building, architecture, design, castles, realms. Um, and uh, and then and Knights and Star Wars. Oh, my gosh. So, so, so good. I love Lego. Um, and um, uh, but my parents actually are obsessed with Scandinavia. They, they like thought about moving there and instead, you know, uh, are, you know, they, they, they moved to Texas from California. So during the pandemic, parents decided to leave California, moved to Austin. Um, but they traveled a lot and they went to, um, uh, they loved Norway. Um, they loved, uh, Denmark. I, I went to, um, Sweden, uh, last summer and I fell in love with that. So I think for Christmas we were like, why not just experience the winter and see how 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 tough it is, and see if we can do it. Um, and turns out, like like they create, uh, they have this word, Danish word, higa, right? Um, they have a hospitality culture, and so our head of hiring, Mark Gray, is uh, half Turkish, half Irish, um, uh, uh, very tall, very funny man, and he is gregarious. He like has all these friends, and so he's like, oh yeah, cool, like. Um, invite your parents for dinner. Uh, we go to dinner together. Um, and, uh, and then he's like, why don't you come for new year's if you don't have plans? And he invites us to his friend Mickle's house and Mickle and his wife, like put on the most amazing meal and treat us like family and, and I meet their friends. Their friends are like, every single one of them is so cool and so fun. And we like dance until like two or 3am. And the thing about the crazy thing, you just wouldn't, you think that like, it's the opposite of your mental image of, um, the Danes. Uh, but, uh, they're wild on new year's Eve. Like the Viking berserker thing comes out and they have like no laws about fireworks. Um, so literally it was like watching the invasion of Baghdad on CNN as a kid or something like, it's like, except, you know, fireworks are literally exploding everywhere, like on the streets, every little street. And it's just like chaos. Like every, every car horn in that city is like, you know, a, a triggered. And, um, and, uh, and I, I got to hear Mikkel's story and Mikkel, um, uh, had just interviewed with invisible for a role that didn't work out. We went with another candidate because that candidate was less entrepreneurial. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I'm like, wait a second we passed on someone because they're not, they're too entrepreneurial. I'm like, I want to meet this person. Mm -hmm. And, um, and his company uh, had just failed because of the pandemic. And I heard the story and like, I'm very empathetic because my first company failed too. And so I told him about my first company that failed. And then I told him how like, you know, Invisible's first business model uh, was basically um, the ability to run any process for any individual. Um, and so it was like turning Everest from a product into a service. And that was a big aha moment for me. But then Invisible ended up pivoting on to go full enterprise B2B. 
And so we sort of um, uh, classic innovators dilemma on ourselves. We abandoned a totally great market for an even better market um, uh, that had, was slightly less challenging. But now that Invisible succeeded and technology has evolved, I felt like I wish I could hire a CEO to go after that opportunity. And now we have the capital to do it. Hey, like, are you interested? Like, we're raising a round right now to try. Mm. And then, okay, so that's like Everest founding story part one. We planted a seed in both of our minds. And I'm thinking, am I overcommitting? This is this is crazy, right? Like, the FBI is going to show up at my door and tell me it's illegal to start, you know, companies while you're running companies that are scaling this fast. Um, and then, and then I get to meet one of my absolute, like, all-time legendary business heroes, whom I li- I've listened to every podcast episode of his. Uh, I've listened to, um, I've read his read his book multiple times, and it's like been our. I've sent the book to every senior partner and board member, recommended it like 888 times at the company, and said like everyone should read this. Outsiders by Will Thorndike. We get introduced, and this is a classic thing of like, am I going to be so nervous that I'm not even going to be able to like put, you know, sentences together in front of this guy and telling, am I going to just fanboy over him so hard that he's going to just like blush and exit? Um, but instead, he's like, I can't tell. Like he's listening so carefully to every word coming out of my mouth. And then at the end of the meeting, I don't know exactly what happened. Being he invests half a million dollars and like agrees to be an advisor. And it's because I basically told him this, I told him that we're following his strategy, which is inspired by Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, and like eight other capital efficient CEOs that focus on long-term shareholder IRR and allocate capital intelligently. And one of the buckets I was exploring was new business development. And I wanted to start basically mini invisibles, uh, new invisible business units to go after all the other service categories with the same exact strategy and playbook that worked and create opportunities, entrepreneurial opportunities, to keep the organization young um, so that all the, everyone who wants, you know, to own, uh, you know, large equity stakes in percentage terms, um, you know, can't do that as invisible scales just because it's math, it's physics, but they can start companies. And 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 this ultimately will create a network effect, like a, a ring fence, like a moat, uh, like a wall of fire around invisible to protect invisible. Um, and... Um, Mm-hmm. So yeah, so that's that's the founding story. That's how we got the money. If if Thorndike hadn't invested, we would not have had the money oh, to hire Mickle. And so then as soon as we closed that, I remember, you know, giving him a call and being like, Are you still available? And he's like, Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, you wouldn't believe what just happened. And then and then he joined. So uh, uh so going back to Thorndike's book, it's really interesting because I had never actually heard that story before. Um, and it's very interesting because I remember an example from that book, which was um talking about how one company bought a radio station or a TV station or a, a whole expand, and this is before remote work, so before good communication. So all the teams were super decentralized, mm-hmm. basically. Um, mm-hmm. and it's so fascinating that instead of going in instead of doing an acquisition, we're going to try to basically um, create that entrepreneurial value within the general network by creating this mm-hmm. new thing. Um, and so I have a question. What what do you think is the difference between what we're doing? Get that, right. <laughs> I'm just trying to g- give the audience a better, an even better view, which it doesn't like because of the lighting, because I'm, I'm in the foreground, it sort of doesn't fully. I mean, it's like I've been, been watching the most incredible sunset. Uh, can you see it? That's amazing. Um, it is amazing. All right, I'll go back. Sorry, didn't mean to distract. 
Couldn't help um, it. So we have all these different companies, you know, we could we could do acquisitions and kind of capture value that's already been created. But what we're doing, and so I guess the main question is, is and I want to talk about Everest, but before that, what what's the main difference between what we're doing and uh, corporate VC? The corporate VC doesn't work and this is going to work because we're spinning it out. It's not going to be under the same roof. The innovator's dilemma basically kills corporate venture. And this is actually, you just touched on the holy grail of capitalism. Truly, because I, I remember thinking about this problem when I was in college and being like, I do not understand. I, I would look at like Google's balance sheet and I'd just be like, I was just learning how to do my very first like research and I was like trading the stock market and losing money like during uh, the first financial crisis. Um, and um, while I was in like my government class, you know, like <laughs> when, I, when I shouldn't have been doing it, I was just like, how does this work? And um, I was like, how does Google have b b b b b b billions on its balance sheet? And like they, you know, none of the alphabet companies really seem to kind of be working or like, you know, but they, at least they're trying. Uh, I interned there and I got to see the bureaucracy on the inside, um, you know, uh, created great company, created a lot of value for shareholders, but it sort of started to make sense for me why you can't start lots of incredibly innovative companies, even though you have these massive super advantages in capital and labor. So I just didn't, didn't understand how could you have all the labor and all the capital and all this valuable technology and all the access and distribution in the world. And how could you not basically, you know, to use a phrase we've been using internally, like how are those not infinity stones that create like unlimited power? Um, and then I discovered, I started, you know, like that was a major um, intellectual conundrum for me. And I've been thinking about it now for, um, I'm 34 now. And, and I was, I think, um, uh, at that time, 18, 19, 20, 20, you know, 21. So thinking about it for a long time, you know, call it 14 years. Um, and there were many aha moments along the way. And one of the aha moments was reading an economist named Ronald Coase, who in the 1920s was asking a similar question about Ford. Um, like how come Ford doesn't do everything? How come, you know, Ford is able to um, build cars and tractors and tanks and airplanes during World War II. How come they also can't, you know, um, build, make deodorant? How come Procter and Gamble needs to exist to make deodorant? You know, like wh why can't you just have an unlimited expansion of an organization in every direction? What is it that creates the limits of the firm? And he discovered all these marginal frictions and coordination costs. And then another aha moment was obviously reading The Innovator's Dilemma. Another aha moment was reading Outsiders by Thorndike. Another aha moment was reading Seven Powers. So there's been a lot of aha moments in theory land, intellectually. But then I sort of thought that, yeah, but I can do it, you know? Um, <laughs> and, and then I, I ran the experiment in the last year. And let me tell you, yeah. like no amount yeah, yeah, yeah. of sheer, sheer dragon energy, no amount of willpower, no amount of sleepless nights, solves the innovator's dilemma you're fighting it, 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 no amount of no amount of even organizational alignment like everyone can be like yes 100 percent. i think this thing should exist and then nobody will devote any time attention or resources towards it why because the main business is scaling rapidly and when you have a hundred million dollar thing over here that you're responsible for 
and this like thing that's like you know uh has like a you know less than a million dollar run rate over here you're like trying to compare a mosquito and an elephant and mm-hmm. so you're just not going to innovate and so that is why we are doing it differently we're doing corporate venture by spinning out infinity um invisible will be the founding investor and 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 at, currently today it's the largest shareholder that may change over time as soon as i get liquidity for invisible i'm going to start diversifying because i believe in diversification as a wealth management strategy and any partners and any of our loyal shareholders that want to diversify with me will be able to invest in infinity um and uh infinity will get like probably like one share in invisible you know just to maintain alignment the other direction mm-hmm. uh maybe we'll even invest in invisible just to create the full circle but um the uh, um we have a conflicts committee to make sure that like you know invisible and the two you know don't end up in any conflicted situations but we're going to create a shared services arrangement between them a talent mobility arrangement between them um that all are you know with the mindset of aligning incentives and the thing is, I consider, I still consider Infinity to be my part-time job um, because I'm founder, president, executive chairman, chief strategy officer, chief uh, investment officer, and no longer CEO, Ben CEO. Uh, but I'm like, you know, um, uh, still the interim entrepreneurship officer of like trying to keep this thing as entrepreneurial as possible. And Invisible is like, you know, like I, I, I'm responsible to a ton of shareholders to get them both long-term shareholder IRR if they decide to stay and like liquidity at great prices if they decide to leave. And, and so how am I going to start all these companies? There's a real dilemma. And the, the way we're doing it is um, Infinity is going to be an asset management company like Berkshire Hathaway, and we're going to put capital to work. And the great thing about capital is it's like software. It just compounds for you. Um, except you're a fiduciary to it. Um, so you just need to find fee fiduciaries. And so the rate limiting factor for infinity is hiring CEOs. Mm-hmm. Once you hire the CEO, they create their own board. Um, they create their own team and they follow the invisible playbook, capital efficient, partnership driven, um, uh, shared values, alignment, um, uh, uh, get to profitability, uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, learn from learn iterate around customers um, and try to um, just be fully counter positioned against big incumbents and multi-billion dollar industries. And so that's what we've done. We've started seven new companies this year and I'm pleased to report, I think all of them are doing well. They're mm-hmm. all, you know, founders that, you know, some of the Mickel's a, a serial entrepreneur, the, the rest of them top, top of my head are all extremely entrepreneurial people with lots of business experience, but none of them are um, uh, former founders. They're first time founders. So they're, uh-huh. they're getting a lot of coaching. I'm a former founder. You are. You're a yeah, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we, that's what we like that. We, we prefer that if anything, it's just, we look for failure because people who fail before have uh, humility. Oh, humility. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Not humiliated, yeah. but humility. That's the, that's the yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, interesting uh, thing. Um, okay. Fascinating. Uh, uh, there's, can I have some pizza? Is that allowed? That on Friday evening. Absolutely. Um, okay. I, I can ramble on while, while you're eating. Um, okay. So, very interesting. And there, the, it, I want to go back to that innovator's dilemma that you were talking about and how you tried over the past year as an experiment to do it, because you tried it from a different angle as the CEO of this company, moving over to the president of, the, of yeah. this company. I tried it from a whole other angle, which was I was the entrepreneur embedded inside of the organization with some of those people, yeah. some of them knowing what I did, some of them knowing what I did and were completely, totally against it. 
some of them not knowing what I did, uh, but I also had this other title oh in the organization, uh, and it was a fascinating journey for me. You're allowed. Yeah, go for it. You're, you're allowed. You're allowed to. You're allowed to share with the audience exactly how political that was and exactly yeah. how tough it was. Yeah. And, and by the way, how did you do it? Like, how did you keep advancing the vision while while balancing all these competing priorities? Uh, a term I've used or uh, I've gotten to know well recently: um, holy ignorance. Uh, so remaining uh, <laughs> basically holy, remaining. Well, I don't know what's going to happen, basically, because there was a point where we, 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 there was a crazy thing going on, and I'm not sure what I can talk about that, but, but there's like a sort of like a, uh, where we thought we were, we were going to spin out earlier, and then something happened where we couldn't spin out earlier, and then I had to basically more kind of camouflage as the director of knowledge management within Invisible. Um, and, and so that was really interesting because I've never worked at a large company. I'm an entrepreneur. I like to do small things, start from the bottom, create my, the whole thing. Um, and to then to be at a large company and think, be the director of knowledge management at a large company was a very interesting thing of like, wait, can I do that? Is that, is that yeah. what I'm really good at? Like, is that, is that where I should be? Uh, and then, but, and then now, now it feels right. Now it's like, now it's, now it feels like, okay, I'm back in this position where it's like, I'm, I get to create the whole team on my own uh, and really go yep. for it. And, and, and I have those, those relationships that I made at Invisible are going to be very important, I think. Um, and that was the really interesting part of being like, okay, am I an entrepreneur or am I part of this larger company was, was a fascinating thing, but that, that inertia- Can you share with the audience our experiment about attempting to create an internal marketplace and why that failed. Yeah. Why, when you tried to start charging internally it, it and what we learned about not just the practice of it and the experience of it, but the theory, the conglomerate discount problem and stuff. Yeah. It's very interesting. So going back to the cone, the cone problem of essentially like, why isn't there just one large company um, that's doing all of their internal transfers, basically going back and forth. Uh, uh, like Coast, 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 not cone. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do you actually price services? So to, to explain it more, so I was a separate company within Invisible and I was trying to charge this charge Invisible for the services that Cosmos was offering Invisible. Uh, but there was no way to actually, I thought about pricing, I pitched pricing, um, but there was no way to actually charge that pricing uh, within the company unless you have some sort of other example outside the company um, and so that's actually where we're headed right now is that basically once I go outside of invisible, then I can set a price based on what the actual market is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, there are examples of companies that have figured out how to do transfer pricing between different business units. There's a way yep. to do it. Um, but, uh, but it, it was, it was, it was, it was the, 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 it was a, a very large challenge to get it up and running um, cause each, what we, what we lacked is the infrastructure to basically have my profit and loss statement. Finance has their profit and loss statement. Whoever I'm charging money from, they have their profit and loss statement and all of those different things moving once, once we shift that value from one place to another, that, that was not set up. So I couldn't, couldn't actually price my services. So I had to go back to just basically doing whatever work, um, that invisible could give me and, one thing I've noticed has just been so interesting and has informed my current strategy is that um, Invisible has given this amazing ability to automate repetitive work for all of their clients and they aren't able to do it themselves. And inside the company is one of the, is extremely manual. Yeah, um, exactly. and, 
It's like yeah. shoemakers, shoemakers, kids go barefoot. Yes, it's the same. Yeah. It's, a, it's another version of the same thing. Um, yeah. The, uh, the, um, uh, the finance team, you know, struggled to prioritize any of these things because again, it feels like a distraction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, you don't actually have an arm's length transaction unless your mandate is to grow Cosmos enterprise value and Invisible's mandate is to grow Invisible's enterprise value. And then these two separate boards can negotiate if necessary, or a, sh- a single negotiation occurs and there's a, a shared services agreement in place. And then the, then the, um, then the executives can just transact according to the previously negotiated terms. Th- that um, can work if they are separate organizations, but when they're inside of the same organization, you got the question, um, yeah, but we're paying for your salary, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is another way of saying like, F you. Yeah, um, yeah, like just work. give me the give me the service. And yeah. then you became a tragedy of the commons. Like everyone was like trying to get maximum Stewart. You were like the the teddy bear that all the kids were like fighting over and pulling in different directions and like poop, you know, yeah. like uh, Solomon's baby or something. And um yeah, uh like I guess we learned from that one. Um, actually, Coase himself was sort of, he's a total prophet. He sort of prophesied that this would occur. He, he talks about um, how uh, there's a cost of creating a price system and and the, the benefit of the market needs to exceed the cost of setting up the market and the cost of creating the frictions that pricing introduces. So um, you might think of a company like a family and within a family, you know, you don't show up to the family meal and, you know, let's just say your grandma made the soup and she doesn't like bring her square cash register up to you and say, like, can you tap to pay, please, before you eat my grandma's soup? Like, no, like, that's absurd. You 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 have the, the, the incredible liberation of being in a non-transactional environment because everyone is aligned, you know, blood runs thicker than water, etc. So that's a cozy and umbrella. So you're inside of this cozy and umbrella in which you actually have gotten rid of transaction costs in order to just create much more tribal coordination and alignment. And then suddenly you're introducing prices and that's like a cultural and economic violation. It doesn't work. But then if you, if you're outside of it, then you, it works again. And that's the the craziest thing. It's been such an interesting learning experience that I'm, that feels extremely valuable is, and I find myself in situations like this a lot of times where I'm part insider, part outsider. Um, and, 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 and being able to be a part insider in a large growing organization doing hyper growth is, is fascinating because, and that's actually what, as Cosmos, this will be very important is because what we really want to focus is on 150 people teams at 150 people who are about to grow to a thousand people. Um, and like all of those things are going to break Dunbar's Dunbar's number. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which yeah. which goes into so, so yeah. have we pitched have we pitched Cosmos yet? Should we just go ahead and pitch it like full sure. on? Yeah, yeah, let's let's pitch it. Yep, yep. All right. Do you want me to do like part one of like the origin story before you came along, or do you want yes. to do do you want to just go straight to pitch? Let's do okay. origin story. Rewind, rewind. Invisible 1.0 starts on October first, twenty fifteen, and um, learning like I felt like one of my lessons from Everest is that it took too long to fail. And I wondered if I, if I like pursued, I was too conservative in a sense. And I wondered if I was much more aggressive, uh, if VCs would like me better and if we would um, somehow succeed. And so uh, I sort of got my dragon energy back (laughs) and I literally told people, I'm going to drive this thing 200 miles per hour at a wall and force the wall to move. And I told that to all of our investors. I'm like, almost certainly going to lose your money. This is higher risk than Everest in the way I'm approaching it. 
I told this to everyone who joined, like we hired over 20 partners and uh, in like, you know, we, we, we had 50 KMRR in our first month and we, we basically were charging CEOs $10,000 a month to be an unlimited, you know, executive support service. It was basically the Everest business model, except uh, Invisible 1.0. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and we, we like had five clients in a wait list and to supply those clients, I just was super aggressive with equity and like hired over 20 people in like three months mm -hmm. uh, to quit their jobs. And I paid them either as much as me in both equity and cash, half as much as me or uh, um, half as much as that. Three tiers, three tier partnership from mm -hmm. day one. Mm -hmm. And then fast fast forward, guess what? It took us less than six months to crash into that wall. <laughs> the wall didn't move and we just crunched and like, like 20 people left and six people stayed and uh, including me. And the six uh, crazy people who none of us really knew why we stayed. We just were like stubborn on like some deep level. Um, and uh, we basically were staring down the fact that like we didn't even have enough money to pay ourselves. Uh -huh. And we just simply, simply through one month of payroll, that many people, um, you know, we're inheriting over a hundred thousand dollars of debt. Um, and, um, and uh, we paused all of our clients Um and, uh, you know, our fundraising had, hadn't worked basically. And we were, the reason why it didn't work, we ran out of capitals. It was costing us $20,000 a month to support every 10K a month client. Uh, we we're so inefficient. We didn't have the digital assembly line we built now. We, that was the next invention. Like literally we, we created our first agent network uh, and our, our first digital assembly line in the, in the year after. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it was just three engineers, two operations people and me. And for 18 months, we bootstrapped and paid ourselves less than $1,000 a month. And uh, we had one client for the first year who had paid us up front, Matt Van Horn at June Oven at the time, uh, which he eventually sold. And um, we, we built like 50 processes for that company, including running their hiring process. And we realized, oh, you know, like uh, we can start to do, be a process assistant instead of an executive assistant. Mm -hmm. And that's when we made our pivot and relaunched. And then we, you know, the rest is there's a whole whole story to tell there, and I'm going to yeah. stop the invisible story. But now I'm going to tell the Cosmos story, which is that in this broken period, in this period where the company should have been to use uh, Scott Cook, I recently had a call with um, Scott Cook, the founder and founding CEO of Intuit. Um, he's still on Intuit's board. He's like a Silicon Valley legend. He hired the way I hired Ben Plummer. Um, he hired um, uh, Bill Campbell. The legendary coach. Um, the there's a book written about him called Billion Dollar uh, Coach, and um, and I got an email earlier this year from one of our investors saying, "Hey, you know, uh, Scott Cook wants to meet with you because Intuit's looking into AI." And we had a call, um, and um, uh, uh, like, um, we're. I was just. Uh, similar to similar to meeting Thorndike for the first time, I sort of fanboyed over him. Uh, I'm like, you know, you're a legend. Uh, I remember seeing Intuit at Costco when I was like a kid with my parents walking through the aisles um, and uh, like QuickBooks and stuff. And uh, and you hired like the best, you know, uh, successor ever. Um, tell me like what you learned and tell me some of the things. Uh, he told me some interesting things. Um, he told me, uh, Jeff Bezos at Amazon after 2003, spent 50% of his time on innovation. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, he was, he, Scott Cook was on the board of Amazon at the time. Um, and, um, uh, and he also told me that there was a period where an Intuit should have been mercy killed his words 
And I was like, there was a period when Invisible should have been Mercy Killed. Why did you keep going? You know, and we totally bonded over that, how we were just, you know, stubborn for, you know, our own reason because we we had a hypothesis and we hadn't fully disproved it yet. In this period of time, Stuart, I spend a year on an idea that still sounds so stupid. It should be a company. <laughs> and that idea is when everyone left and everyone quit or slash like invisible, invisible 1.0 ran out of, out of money. They left behind digital chaos because we had grown from not existing to 26 partners in six months. And then all 20, 20 of them left and six people were left cleaning up the rubble. So digitally speaking, it was like, you know, somebody had bombed a city, you know, um, and then we were like picking up the rubble and trying to like turn it into a thriving city again, post-war reconstruction is what it felt like digitally. And, and I, the way I started the organization cleanup, like, okay, everyone quit, we're broke, and we've got one client. Like one of my projects was I created a folder on Google Drive. I called it the folder. And I was like, this is the folder that's going to contain all other folders. And I took all the mess and I put it in that folder. And then our Google Drive was clean. It had nothing in it but one folder. And then inside of that folder, I created two folders to organize and organized. And then I put everything inside of it into organized and that organized had nothing in it. And then I went into to organize and I started looking for any patterns in the data. And I started creating taxonomies. I started creating consistent naming systems, metadata, consistent formatting, consistent organization. I created a whole invisible digital, almost like a, an aesthetic. When you looked at these documents, it was just, it was like an invisible intelligence had gone through. It's like an invisible process had gone through every single file, every single folder, every single slide deck, every single spreadsheet, every single document and organize them all. And this was actually my way of trying to figure out what people actually did in those first six months and why they created, you know, why so little enterprise value was created, even though people seemed to be working hard. Um, and it really shaped our culture and values. It really did. Um, and it shaped the whole way we built the business. Um, in a way that like the DNA of that, of, of the folder, which was Cosmos 1.0, um, uh, you know, and just the attitude of like being very organized and, and systematic and building systems and focusing on efficiency and digital productivity, thinking of ourselves as like, you know, um, almost like Jiro dreams of sushi, but for, you know, digital productivity, like this sort of attitude of being super Zen and OCD, like we were just openly OCD. We're like, yes, so this is OCD. So what? Um, and at the time, our vision was, you know what? If invisible doesn't work out because we can't convince anyone that invisible has like a ton of use cases, if nobody has the imagination to use invisible, let's just use invisible to build cosmos and we will, we will pitch it to the world as um, an uh, uh, automation AI and it'll be organization as a service and we'll charge people um, like eventually if we're super efficient and we automate it a lot, we'll eventually charge people insane prices like one cent per month for every file under management. But by every file, we literally mean every email every calendar event, every, like every literal data ent entity in your, in your organization, we will organize all of it for you so that your fetch times are fast so that everybody knows what's going on. So that onboarding is great. And that will be our business. And I'm sure VCs will love that. That was like my thought to myself, but then invisible ended up working. And so cosmos was abandoned in the same way that Everest was abandoned and invisible 1.0 was abandoned. 
And it was sort of like innovator's dilemma. I thought, damn it, that was like a billion dollar company waiting to happen. And I just had to go the other way. I had to drop it. I had to focus. And so, um, and in the same way that Invisible is like radically horizontal, it can be an everyone company, like the same way Coca-Cola is an everyone company. Um, and uh, McDonald's is an everyone company, like every man, woman, and child in the world, you know, is their sort of target market. For Invisible, it's every company in the world. For, for Cosmos, it's literally every every organization and every person in the world has files. I mean, everyone has seen like your desktop that when it's super cluttered or your email inbox when it's super cluttered or your Spotify when it's super cluttered or your Google Drive when it's super cluttered or your Notion when it's super cluttered. Everyone knows what that's like. And everyone knows it's not a great use of their time. And everyone wishes that there was a service that could just read their mind and organize everything beautifully mm-hmm. um, and and sort of be an AI that does that. Mm-hmm. That, um, that as a business model was so similar to Invisible it, it haunted me because I'm like, in, in the realm of ideas, I, you have to see I'm a very, um, I'm a very mystical person. Um, and so I totally believe, like Plato said, that ideas are more real than things. I believe in the realm of ideas, the subtle realm. Um, and I believe it's like a layer dimension that exists on top of reality, the archetypes that are like drawing us towards them. And so I, I literally have have a call it, you know, some people think it's a superstition that invisible is an idea like a goddess, like a muse or, uh, or a god or something, you know, like that's trying to invade the real world from idea world. And I have just been uh, and, and I try, I think, try to make the whole organization into a kind of lightning rod for that electricity to like channel that you know idea in the world. And there's this beautiful Victor Hugo quote, Victor Hugo wrote Les Miserables. Um, and other other great novels, French author, he said, um, uh, there's nothing uh, that can stand against an idea whose time has come. You know, it's just, okay, if Invisible's time has come, I just, I always felt like as a matter of almost belief, it's time is going to come, it's time is going to come, and that got us through all the hard years. Um, but then I thought, but wait a second. You know, way back there, we sort of abandoned, in order to stay true to our true to our first love, in order to stay true to the the, the, the big opportunity and the first company, we sort of had this other great multi-billion dollar idea that was basically the same. And in this case, at this moment in Invisible's history, Cosmos's time had not come. It was very clear to me that from a sequencing point of view, Invisible had to come first because Invisible is like a black box that can perfectly execute any process in theory. And increasingly every year in practice, right? It's becoming more and more powerful and capable. So what sort of businesses could never have existed that can now be built on top of Invisible? The same way that businesses can now be built on top of LLMs or, or OpenAI or GPT or, you know, um, what businesses, you know, were able to exist after G Suite uh, or Google, you know, all these major technologies end up becoming platforms like the App Store is a platform. So, I think, you know, I always hope that Invisible will be a platform um, that could do all the operational work for a company that could allow us to scale any process infinitely and efficiently. And then the number one process I thought that was like, what's a, what is it, a universal process that everyone needs, that everyone would pay for? If you could automatically, with automation and AI and futuristic operations, intelligently organize all the world's data. And I thought about the Google mission statement to organize the world's information, to make it universally accessible and useful. And I thought about the ways in which Google had succeeded in that mission statement in ways Google which had totally failed and basically abandoned their mission statement. Why the innovator's dilemma? So there's tons. I mean, that mission statement is such a huge, like, uh, creates such a large territory that there's there's so much. And I thought about the local intranet, basically, which is knowledge management. 
and how like knowledge management is so expensive. Like if most organizations wanted to literally organize every single file and folder and email and data entity in their entire organization and make them all totally networked together, all intelligently organized and reorganized and reorganized in, a, in an evolutionary way and all the metadata, all the formatting, everything super professional and consistent. Today, it would be an absurdity. Like it would almost be like, you could almost imagine like a TV series comedy, like, you know, acting out the absurdity of attempting it's like a Zeno's paradox. And I was, I'm obsessed with Zeno's paradoxes. It's like a, you know, an Ouroboros, it's like a snake eating its tail. It's like an economic singularity. Like even the most profitable company in the world, like take Apple. If I think it dedicated, you know, unlimited resources off its balance sheet to organize itself, the people and things that they would hire and do to, to do that would would itself result in like, you know, creating more data that could, it just would never be able to catch itself. It's too entropic. And so I was realizing, wow, you're dealing with like cosmic principles at every level, like entropy, chaos, and order. And so Cosmos is obviously the name of the company. And then, you know, I, I mentally uh, put it in my cheeky ideas folder uh, and digitally too. Cheeky is a whole other company. We'll talk about another time. <laughs> I was like, all right, this goes in the ideas box. And maybe someday, maybe, maybe someday, if we are fortunate and blessed by the gods, um, there will come a time where I will meet a person who is actually the better founder and CEO for this than me. And, um, and who's willing to carry the torch, move forward and, and, and be the the channel for the idea whose time has come in that future and and will hear the same muse I hear. And in that future, I will have the resources and the network and the track record and the, the uh, access to talent and the access to capital and the access to distribution and clients that, that will enable me to make another shot at this. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, this is now, I think the time when I invented the folder and I spent, a, dude, I spent a year like as my own agent, just as me, Francis, like I spent countless hours. I spent my 10,000 hours. Okay. Personally being a knowledge management agent, personally being a cosmos agent before cosmos existed, personally trying to organize invisible and cam did too. And that's why cam needs to be a cosmos, like a co-founding advisor. You should give him shares because he gets it. And there's, there's a few, there's a few other people that like you remember the folder, like all the original invisible people remember it. I've, I've got a story um, about that as well. I've got a story about the folder, but we'll save that for unrecorded time. Make the folder the most valuable folder of the world. <laughs> uh, so uh, it'll be like our, our U.S. Constitution. We'll keep it in our, our uh, national archives. Um, but uh, uh, fast forward, that was 20, like Invisible was founded October 1st, 2015. Uh, this whole period where we were playing with the folder was um uh 2016 2017 and by late 2017 i dropped it you know we kept it it, it was still around it was still the basically mm-hmm. the way we were organizing things but it like sort of naturally entropy occurred and it just decayed and decayed and decayed and it was so funny to me to hear people in later years complain about the folder because they yeah. obviously i didn't have time to like i did not have time to give them the pitch and explain to them why it existed and they just saw it as like this messed up thing and i just kind of wanted to tell them you don't understand it's a messed up thing now. Nobody understands. trying to solve the messed up thing. But, nobody uh, understands. But, really? Nobody. We should make like a New York cartoon about what it's like to do knowledge management. It's just like it's so unappreciated. Nobody understands. Uh, it's it's wild. Uh, and I, I I don't know if whether you were able to connect with one of the advisors that I was that I was talking to. He ta- he talks about that specific problem within knowledge management in general. 
but then also not only knowledge management. So traditionally, knowledge management isn't supposed to be getting involved inside of the organization. Uh, most people would call that information uh, management. Knowledge management, oh. since I started to research, uh, knowledge management is actually more concerned with the knowledge that's people inside people's heads. It goes back to what you were saying earlier about how about tribal knowledge. Yeah. Well, and also how once you once somebody leaves, once those twenty pe people left invisible, and you were left with the six people, all of that knowledge disappeared. All of that, and 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 not all of that knowledge can be gotten out of people's heads. And, and although there are some interesting things that I'm thinking about that we can do. Uh, so there's information management, that organization thing, I would uh, the send me your organized files. And that's where Cosmos comes in is basically the idea with Cosmos is that I integrate into your team, we integrate into your team, uh, and anybody on the team can send me anything to organize it. And it's the difference between important tasks and urgent tasks. And going back to 150 people growing to a thousand people, this is the really the, the all everything is going to break because you started as a company of five people. Those five people are sending each other emails to get everything done. You get to 150 people, you realize, okay, well, those emails, they can't just send emails. We have to process, put everything into a process and develop everything. And then you go to a thousand people, all that's going to break over and over and over again. And that goes back to um, what you're saying about the folder, why nobody gets it is because that folder was set up for a company of, uh, when did you start it? When did, like, of like- uh, I started it in 2016 when we were a, a six person company. Yeah, exactly. And so like, and, and so like the, each, each stage of the company requires a whole another approach to organization. Um, and it's like yes. a wildly difficult problem because not only is that the problem, but to solve that problem, we also need to integrate and get 100% buy-in from the whole organization. But the promise of what we're doing is insane because all of, all of the important stuff, like all of it's important, and, and it came, came up with a new term called organizational debt. In the same way that their, a company has technical debt, a company also has organizational debt. Um, and if we can nail this particular thing, like that unlocks a huge amount of value, but not only value, it's Got like- it. That is it. Organizational debt, data debt. Like pay, pay, I'm literally updating our website as I'm hearing you talking. Like <laughs> yeah. pay down your organizational data debt and so that really is like if we can if we can nail this and focus on these important tasks and get the important task out of your way uh then you can focus on the urgent stuff because that 150 to a thousand people uh breakage point is just such a stressful and it goes back to something i've spent a lot of my last 10 years about about how to um it's like it it totally is digital therapy and, yes, and, it like, is, and it's, by yeah. the way, it's like Marie Kondoing. It's yeah. so it, there's such a weird, like perverse pleasure in doing this. It's literally like the it's the same pleasure uh, of like cleaning the dishes and, yeah. uh, um, you know, I don't know. Um, Rearranging the uh, house, uh, sweeping up, yes. doing, doing the laundry. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The ultimate caretakers. Yeah, we should share with the audience the website. We just launched a website, totally version 0 0.1. Uh, we we added it to our LinkedIn's. We are now public. It's cosmic-knowledge.notion.site. And yes, we are getting a domain. Uh, we actually already have a domain, uh, but uh, Stuart's going to work with Britain to get an actual website up and, and with Anne. Um, but, uh, but yeah, um, now um, your turn to pitch it in your own words. Why did you join? I mean, like, I think people underestimate Stuart. 
I mean, I was always underestimated as a founder. I'm still underestimated today. At least I think so. Um, uh, and um, uh, sometimes, like, sometimes it like boggles my mind that people don't actually see, you know, like, um, like in, they're waiting for the company to make sense in a spreadsheet. But like, when the company exists, you know, in the person's head and heart um, and whole body, and you should be able to see it in their eyes, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Um, one of the, the the great super advantages that a capital efficient founder has is that unless they run out of money, um, which they won't do if they're living in a place like Buenos Aires, which you are doing now, right? And they won't do if they're running a capital efficient strategy uh, and they've read Outsiders. The main reason the company is going to fail is if they give up. Yeah. And yeah. so like... I saw that in you. I like, okay. I was like, this guy's people are going to not realize how tough and committed he is. Um, and how right he is as a co-founder for this. I don't really know why I knew that intuition is a mysterious thing, but like, what, what was the process like for you? How did your intuition come to the point of like, you know what? I'm going to say yes to this. I'm going to work with Francis. Well, that, that's the funny part. Cause I, I, I had been, you know, I, I, I had had you on my podcast many times uh, and I had been following your company. I knew people who had worked for invisible before I knew what was, what I was getting into uh, when I, when I said yes. Um, and, uh, and it was wild to, to, cause I, I had just been coming out of a seven year medical crisis um, uh, really, really challenging period where I really had to find the inner, the inner kind of unbreakable uh, aspect of myself, just because like my own body and mind had turned into a sort of like um, hell on earth. Uh, and so like, w- and then I was descending, uh, ascending outside out of that, um, but still in this, like the deepest, darkest hole. And then <laughs> uh, we were supposed to record a podcast. Uh, and then uh, we didn't actually do that podcast. And we got to talking, I was telling you about what was going on in my life. Um, and you were like, well, why don't you, why don't you come do it? Uh, come join us at Cosmos and, 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 and let's, let's like, I've got this new idea for a new business unit. And I had already done internal business units, um, within larger companies. Um, and the way that you pitched it made me think that it was significantly different than that. Uh, and as soon as you told me the idea, I started, I was just like, okay, that's, that's, there's something there. Um, and I want to do it. And it's also been like, I, I write these large Twitter threads. And so I've got all of my Twitter threads organized on a list um, and like, I know exactly where to go. I've organized my whole entire life on Twitter, basically as my personal note-taking service. Uh, And then this, this idea that I could then not only do it for myself, but also do it for a company was super interesting. Uh, There's a great meme that I just saw uh, uh, yesterday, which is like a flag, a banner that you put on, on a high school um, gym or something like that. And says, we do not do this because it's easy. We do this because we thought it would be easy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I love that so much. Just like everyone thinks organizing files is easy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Anyone anyone can do that. Right. No. Yeah. But then, and and that's, that's, Every entrepreneur starts it because they're like, well, maybe not the serial entrepreneurs who have learned before. They've they they know the 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 right ones that are just that are easy enough to do it, but also but but every entrepreneur gets stuck inside their company because they know they think that it's going to be easier than it is, uh, and but then you get into it and you and like there is so much potential here, and it goes back to like something I've been thinking about invisible in general, which is that. As soon as you solve a problem, 
all the other problems behind it now appear to be solved. And so uh, in the 1990s, Intel had tried to do knowledge management. Google had tried to do knowledge management. Um, uh, Facebook has tried to do knowledge management. All these companies, some good examples of, of people who have actually done good knowledge management, but not many, very few. Uh, but now we're in a particular time where we've got this LLM, which is natural language. You can use natural language to have it do things. Uh, the hype is down, down, died down a little bit. It can't do all the things that we thought it would do. But that's actually a good thing for Cosmos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause because now, like, because if it if it was, we'd be too late. Uh uh, but but now we're in the right time. I'm thinking in two to three years, autonomous agents are gonna give me the ability to to really, really organize things in a in a very interesting way. Um yeah, and so as soon as you told me the idea in that and, and at that time, I was living in a 1968 trailer on my property that I had uh like uh like during a giant giant snowstorm. I'm not sure if you ever heard this story, but I the first day that I joined Cosmos and Invisible, uh, there was a 40-year snowstorm, and I was living in this trailer, and we lost power for two two weeks. Uh, and I had to uh, 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 my neighbor. I couldn't drive anywhere because the snow was so crazy, uh, and so I had to. He, my neighbor bought a generator for me because we had no internet, no power, no internet. So I had to. He brought it back in his big truck, and then I I put the generator on a sled and sled it down the hill, and then back up my giant hill. Uh, all on my first day of work uh, for uh, Invisible, which is uh, not a uh, uh, not an easy company. Not a not a. Uh, there's a lot of work in Invisible to be done, and uh, and so then uh, I you know I like got the generator up, got the internet running, and I basically did our, my first two weeks at Invisible were uh, on a generator with uh, with hooked into my router. Um, I remember the photos. And yeah. I, you know, like, did you have imposter syndrome of like, is this real? Am I really working for this company? Is anyone going to like fire me because I'm not in an office? Yes. And that, well, and I think the, that's the, the FBI moment. ever show up and say, why aren't you at the office? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure every remote worker feels that at some point. Well, and that's <laughs> like, the, there's something like, there, even there's if you're working hard. Yeah. Well, there's something there too, because Invisible has figured out how to do something a lot of the other companies haven't been able to figure out, which is to get people so excited about the work. Uh, and also provide a lot of work. And there's not necessarily like a, a like anybody overseeing you or anything like that. They just kind of present it to you with a smile on their faces. Um, and, and there's something about the buy-in that Invisible does that other companies I don't think are doing very well and might, um, uh, might kind of hobble remote work, but I guess we're getting a little bit off track, but uh, um, uh, so yeah, when you pitched me the idea, I started like dreaming about it, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And 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 I I see it everywhere. Now I go into um, coffee shops or uh, stores, and I think about how they're organizing their products, and I think about how they're kind of tallying everything. And it's just like a, this this wild world that nobody thinks about, particularly in startups, because they're all focused on the urgent stuff, and they don't focus on the important stuff unless it becomes urgent. Basically, yeah. You got it. Um, help the audience visualize the most futuristic version of cosmos you can currently imagine achieving within the first decade well so the way that we are interacting right now we've got these computers and then we've got zoom and zoom has built the infrastructure to essentially do very good uh, video calls anywhere in the world between any country in the world and and do it but not only that we also have these keyboards uh, and these keyboards are allowing us to get our thoughts into the computer. 
Um, and so all of that is a relic of solving a problem about how to basically connect our minds with the, the bicycle of the mind, which is the computer. Um, fusion, which by the way, that's the, that's the word I think of when oh, that you talk about. Fusion of man with machine, fusion of wizard and wand, fusion of motorcycle with motorcyclist. You know, we experience this and we actually are have capable of creating phantom limbs. Like homo sapiens can use a tool like a limb, right? And that is, uh, it becomes a part of your organi organism. You you know, even, even to see how powerful this is, you can even watch a child playing a video game, whether it's on an iPhone or an iPad or a console or whatever. Let's just say it's a flying game. And there, you know, you see that their head, their head moves with the X-Wing and the Star Wars, you know, like aviation simulator. And, and they're like, you know, when their X-Wing takes damage from a TIE fighter, they like, they like, they literally, you will yeah. see their whole visceral physiology tense up like they're getting hit and hurt because um, they they they're entering the simulation um, and this is at our current levels of immersion just wait till there's full you know uh full fusion and i and i feel like there's a great podcast episode there uh, uh maybe another time on that specific issue in terms of uh where that goes but uh um, the, okay. So, and so we've got all this network, all this ability to basically get our heads into this computer. And it's, that is a, you know, 30 year, 40 year process, uh, to build all these things. It's my belief that a lot of that's going away, essentially, as I was talking about in terms of the pro we solve one problem, all the other problems go are, are behind it. So now if current LLMs advance very quickly, if we get some sort of autonomous agents, uh, that can do our bidding in a sort of um, in a in a very uh, uh, we don't have to give them much context. They can just we say it, they do it. Then most of that software then kind of either there's two options. There's speaking to it. So I think that all of this software is basically going to turn into one piece of software that then goes and connects. And if what Cosmos does right, we can play an integral part of that the the connecting those back layers so so if you have so right now we use notion as our knowledge management but we also want notion to connect with netsuite um, because there's a lot of things in netsuite a lot of things in notion so cosmos is the glue between those two pieces of software um and now that that may hopefully i'm not explaining too much but uh that that will then give us the data to train llms to connect all these different pieces together and then imagine that you know, instead of you working on Notion, you're just talking with the AI and the AI is behind the scenes doing all of that stuff. It's really fully the wizard and the wand. Yeah. You're able to delegate at the speed of thought and move at the level of intent. Here's my strategic intent. I want to focus all my energy being creative. And then this system is doing all the organizational work that's administrative in nature. Now, the question is, why isn't Everest doing this? Why is a separate company necessary? Yeah, interesting. So Everest focus on uh, uh, the, and I see a clear partnership between Everest and, and Cosmos, Correct. but but Everest is focusing mostly on the, the leadership and having the leadership really focus on um, getting all of the uh, ancillary things of getting stuff done. So you're in Chiang Mai, I wonder how much of your actual experience in Chiang Mai was kind of facilitated by Everest. Um, and that seems like, an interesting part, but it's not necessarily the glue of the company. So, so Everest is focused more on the the, the executive, the the central, the the um, the prefrontal cortex of the organization, 
And uh, cosmos is more the fascia uh, and the connective tissue between the whole body, basically, of the organization. Did that answer it? Yes. Um, and you could think about, you know, did uh, Invisible found Everest or did Everest found Invisible or did Cheeky found Invisible or did Cosmos found uh, Everest or did Everest found Cosmos? You know, it's just like this at the level of the at the level of ideas, you realize that, like, forget about the history of Francis's entrepreneurial career as a founder. Like these ideas are inherently linked at a deep, deep level. There are clear network effects between them. Mm. So the fact that here in time, um, we actually are creating the business incentives between these business units to um, not kill each other because they will be unshackled and they will be separate companies able to pursue their own independent destinies because it's not a codependent relationship. All of them could succeed and become billion dollar companies without each other. But together, you're creating... Increase shareholder IRR for everybody because they're just mm. clear. There's a clear alliance, you know. It's a clear. It's a clear, you know, um, uh, milk and honey or uh, peanut butter and jelly, you know, type of uh, Lego Star Wars, like whatever, whatever match made in heaven you want to think of. Mm. Okay, and so it also almost feels like we should start in these podcast episodes. We should start inviting, like the next one, we should do with Mickle here as well. Um, totally. Yeah, that's exactly uh, right. Um, uh, and so as you were saying that, it made me think that Cosmos will could play a very important role in terms of infinity as well. Because if we go to the fascia, the fascia connection, basically, not only does invisible need to be organized, infinity also needs to be organized. And then the key interesting thing for me now is now I'm starting to look externally, finding that first client. Um, yeah, Infinity will be a customer, not just an investor in Cosmos, a customer of Cosmos. Yeah. And so hopefully, you know, nobody's going to force Ben uh, and Joe. Um, uh, I certainly, you know, am not. You know, I, my, my, hope, my hope is to make these just be so freaking good, insanely great as services that everyone actually wants to buy from each other, you know. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, to actually, I, I think a lot about theoretical disgruntled shareholders because I think that's the best medicine to actually not get any real disgruntled shareholders. Um, I yes. really want happy, long-term loyal shareholders. But like, I have this like theoretical cranky voice in my head who like, you know, is like, um, uh, you know, the archetype of like a Ken or a Karen. Uh, you know, it's poor, poor people with K names, you know, you choose whatever letter of the alphabet you want to pick on. Um, but, um, you know, it was like, you know, um, uh, you know, you had invisible higher cosmos because whatever, and I'm not, I don't have, you know, the exact amount, same amount of shares in both uh, organizations, you know, this is, and so there's an actual, um, our board member, Eduardo Temraz has a lot of, uh, high integrity, um, uh, sort of cr critiques of Elon Musk. And, you know, he, he, uh, he told me that there's a shareholder lawsuit about how, um, one of the companies hired another. I forget what it was. Mm -hmm. um, um, but, um, you know, was there, oh, no, no, actually, he told me it was, it was a, a lawsuit against Bezos. Bezos, um, uh, Amazon hired Blue Origin. And obviously, Bezos is the major shareholder in Blue Origin. He's an Amazon shareholder, but the rest of the Amazon shareholders don't own an equal stake in Blue Origin. And so there's a the class action shareholder lawsuit against him. And, you know, was there was there an RFP? Did you go with the cheapest provider uh, that could provide the service? Because the cheapest provider would have been SpaceX. 
not Blue Origin. But you, of course, wanted to use your own company. Therefore, you were conflicted. And uh, it sounds super petty, you know, that an Amazon shareholder would be so ungrateful to, you know, this guy. But whatever. It's like it's from a Delaware Delaware law point of view. The case is not immediately thrown out and not immediately dismissed. So it's it's I think it's in progress. Um, the uh, the reason why this is relevant is that like let's do an RFP, you know, like let, let's look at the competitors. Like our conflicts committee should be involved in decisions like this. And I don't think that there is a competitor tr- that that is basically has the same vision and can deliver the same service, the same end to end digital organization vision that we've got. I think that vision is unique. Yeah, well, and, and I, I thought about that a lot because as when I first started in February, I started to look at the competitive landscape and there are not many people who are trying to do it. There are many people uh, who are using technology to get at little parts of this problem, uh, but there's nobody stitching together all of these different technologies or whichever technologies are necessary in order to solve the, the larger problem, um, which is how to think about organization at a strategic level and how to think about uh, uh, where all your files are in the company and how to connect all your files and all those. There's, there's no one thinking about that, um, uh, at least none that, I, that I've been able to find. Uh, there's a few kind of ancillary uh, ancillary people who may kind of evolve into that. But when I first noticed that, I, I've known from my previous startup experience that if there's nobody else doing it, that could mean a few different things. One of which is that there's no market there. The other, which that's is a bad uh, idea. Yeah, that's, that's a bad idea. idea. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I don't, I don't, but, but it, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that. The other thing, the, but wait, wait, the other logic, the other logical, uh, conclusion is, uh, that you've stumbled into a huge opportunity. That's incredible. Yes. Yeah. And- um, by the way, I feel so having just come from, um, you know, Uluwatu in Bali, which is literally heaven on earth, but has the weird experience of. Yeah. Uh, it's like Instagram took over, you know, <laughs> like yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah. it's it definitely doesn't feel like the government of Indonesia is in control of Uluwatu. It feels like Instagram's in control of Uluwatu. Um, uh, it's been overrun and, uh, but it's, it's like a paradise for, you know, I don't know, um, uh, digital nomads in their twenties and thirties. Yeah. Um, and then I'm here in May Rim in North of Chiang Mai. And I'm like, this, this could, this could slash should slash you know, be better than Uluwatu or be at least as good and at least as popular, but it's, it's not, it like hasn't been discovered yet. Mm-hmm. So immediately it's the same, it's yes. the same possible possibilities. Either I'm wrong and, and it's just, there's just some thing that I'm missing in that it just makes it impossible for that to occur or makes it a bad investment or I discovered it. And if I discovered it, it makes me, of course, think about that verse in the gospel. I think it's the gospel of Matthew of the parable of hidden treasure. You know, what you do is you sell what you can to go buy, buy the field that has the hidden treasure in it. Uh, so, but then the, the key aspect that we're talking here, we haven't mentioned yet, which is timing. Uh, and so mm-hmm. whether it's the right time, May Rim might be 10 years out, might be five years out, might be a year out. And then the same thing for talking about real estate. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you it, might have you might have lower IRRs, but but yeah, but there's lots of yeah, that is that is a good example. And from a capital efficient, you know, long-term shareholder IRR perspective, you don't want low IRRs. So it's it's totally legit. And uh and you know, th- this is a bit of the art of it. Like 
you're never going to, this is the thing of like overly analytical people tend to join companies at late stages yeah, and they tend to create a lot of value through optimizing things to the nth degree, yeah, but they yeah. don't actually create the lion's share of the value because the lion's share of the value is created by risk takers. It, this is, this is the key thing that, um, you know, the history of socialist thought tends to ignore, um, which is that this is like value creation is not proportional to labor. Mm -hmm. Even though so much mm -hmm. of my entrepreneurial career has been actually about advancing the cause of labor um, in so many ways, like remote work, uh, you know, aligned equity, um, uh, uh, partnership models, transparency, you know, it's like a capitalist workers revolution, digital assembly line. I mean, there's so much about this, the whole, you know, um, vision that we've advanced in the world that's sort of um, has this uh, labor, almost like labor union, you know, vibe to it. Um, I'm a capitalist. And part of the reason I'm a capitalist is that, um, and by the way, labor can be capital. Mm. It's a form of risk taking. But mm. one of my board members just reminded me that there there was a very real scenario, even a likely scenario, that I would end up being 40 years old and a broken entrepreneur who'd spent all of his 20s and all of his 30s building companies and had nothing to show for it, but giant, you know, like zeros and uh, had, you know, deployed, uh, you know, whatever that would have been at the time, say collectively $10 million or more of of investor capital and if you had the debt, the debt to it that we use for buybacks, you know, more and, and, uh, and had nothing to show for it. Uh, you know, and it's like, there's definitely an element of risk and there's definitely an element of luck, even when you have a great strategy, even when you're, you're, um, you're, you end up being right in the end, even when you hire well, even when you sell well, even when you do all the hustle. And, and this is why, um, I, I believe in, you know, taking a mystical approach to life because it's always good to be super grateful and to just, be aware of the the great unknown and the great mystery that like is behind these things that are so far out of our control and out of anyone's ability to model, predict, um, or comprehend. Well, let's, I would love to go into that. Yeah. And, you know, the, the hyper analytical person, you know, is not like, it's, it's the person who takes the leap of faith and puts themselves at risk that when they found the company and there is zero is the enterprise value is zero, 0. 0.0000. They have, and they're the only founder on day, day one, they have hundred percent of the shares. There's a reason for that. That's mm -hmm. how wealth is created in the economy is risk-taking. And so, yeah, like there are totally these two realities where you're dead wrong or you're, you're right. And the only way to run the experiment is to run the experiment. Yeah. And the experiment is inherently eaching. It's inherently change changes the law it's out of control all you can do is dance with it yeah which is why i'm doing so much dancing and so much surfing as well um <laughs> uh because uh, it, there's so much we could talk about but i really want to make sure maybe for the i don't know if you have to go at the hard stop but um I don't. Uh, uh, there's there's such an interesting part where you just mentioned about the leap of faith and there's the it's the faith aspect of it as well and i'm not necessarily a theist and i don't think you are either um, or maybe, well, well, so I am a theist. I'm well, also a lot of other things, but I'm a theist. It, it will. And, and, and I might not have used the correct word there. Cause, um, uh, you mean in the Jeffersonian sense, I don't know. What, what, what does that mean? Jeffersonian sense. Uh, well, yeah, it's like, which definition of this word are we using? But just in the, uh, 
do I believe in a metaphysical being uh, that uh, created everything? Yes, I do. Uh, is that being personal? Um, first of all, the, the nature of such a thing is mysterious. The Tao Te Ching, Tao Ke Tao, um, Fei Chang Tao, Ming Ke Ming, Fei Chang Ming. Uh, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. There is a mysterious quality uh, to nature and existence itself, which evades uh, total solution, evades total comprehension, evades um, total description, um, and and will continue to do so. Um, if, it, if, if in a hundred years you believe that science will have fully solved all scientific questions, um, you know, wow, you and I have a different worldview. Um, and that's because, among other things, I'm a theist. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And so I, we, we agree there. And the reason I brought, uh, asked that question is because there's a relationship with starting a company as well, because we were talking about risk and being over analytical. The reason why an over analytical person will never take that risk is because of that, that, that trap that's set up by the fact that not only is the, the, the mystical being that we're, we're discussing also outside of our frame of awareness, outside of our ability to model Every little thing inside the physical universe is also outside of our ability to model, uh, including, you know, the chair, right. including the computer Correct. that I'm using. Yeah. Even like, calling uh, it a uh, even calling it a being is a bit of uh, an invitation to investigate the mystery. You know, uh, Heidegger's work, Being in Time, is, uh, you know, an investigation into, well, what do we even mean by being? Um like what is time? I, I think uh, this is obviously this podcast is not um, you know dedicated to philosophy, but you know you and I know that we could spend hours just forgetting about the audience, just for our own enjoyment and pleasure and and, and fascination, diving into these you know really root level questions. But I, I think it's worth mentioning even on a business and technology podcast to like play a little bit with philosophy because if you're an entrepreneur slash MBA slash whatever you're trying to make it big in the the business slash tech slash finance world. Even if you're totally just, you know, a total mercenary and all you, all you care about is dollar dollar bills, y'all, you know, still you should care about philosophy because philosophy is the, like so much of software is like literally, uh, like, um, conceptually identical with philosophy it's just instantiated in software like even the concept of layers in a stack that's platonism and 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 so if you want to go fast you, you will you will go so much faster conceptually if you just go ahead and study the history of thought the history of thought will inspire you to then tr- translate the history of business differently than you've ever translated it before. And, and you're much else. more likely to guess. You're much more likely to sort of like, you're much more likely to guess the next idea or see the thing that nobody, you know, has gone after yet or whatever. If you train your mind to do these, um, these, these, uh, um, well, these exercises, these philosophical exercises, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like going to the gym through your brain. And so what do you think, is the relationship between starting a company in that sense of like that because there's there's there are many entrepreneurs some small subset of those entrepreneurs are also have a sort of mystical take on it 
uh, a lot of very, very good entrepreneurs would be highly uncomfortable in this conversation because. Uh, oh yeah, for sure. I, yeah. yeah. I, I, like I am, uh, I'm a weirdo um, and I don't speak for all entrepreneurs nor claim to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, okay. So should we go back. So, well, and that, and that relates to cosmos because there's a sort of the, the whole name cosmos itself uh, is the whole, uh, no, you, you, you say order. order. Yeah. 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 Um, and no, it's order. Yeah, exactly. It's order. Um, and this, what we've been talking about, this small seed of chaos, the fact that if I look at this chair, if I actually inquire into the chair, the chair is far larger than my ability to, um, model it, but I have modeled it with my brain and, and, and the, but that model of the brain is, is, is ridiculous. So we're constantly creating order at all times. And, and so mm -hmm. that feels like what cosmos is doing as well. And but it, it all it is related to what we've been talking about because the whole entire like universe you said that Google had failed at their mission to organize all of the universe's information because the clarify I, they 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 certainly succeeded uh, in building one of the biggest companies in the world um, but if the they failed in the sense that did they fully achieve the mission no that's actually what makes it a great mission it's not it's sort of like that mission is still going to be fresh in like you know a hundred years. But they've gotten to a place in their innovators dilemma where they're just stuck in a very narrow, mm -hmm. very narrow definition of that bit mission. Mm -hmm. And there's huge territory that they have not explored mm -hmm. within the same mission. So you could literally have Cosmos copy paste the, the Google mission statement, make it your own. Uh, or add, make it even better if you you can think of ways to do that. Well, and 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 tailor it to the to the organization itself, the hyper growth organization, and 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 basically taming the chaos of hyper growth. I like that. Um, I love that. It's good. Good line. Add it to the website. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, is this a podcast or a co working session? It's kind of both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. How do you want to wrap this uh, episode? What do you think the uh, audience? Uh, needs to hear most. I, I kind of want to hear from you just a brief um, uh, forecast of your strategy and and what do you what do you what are the milestones you think you're going to hit in the next you know um, year, next uh, three years, next five years? You know what what are you what are you trying to achieve? Well, the most uh, the most like clear one and it isn't on those time frames, but it's a very very immediate, which is to find a, a customer so we can really really validate all of the really juicy stuff that I found at Invisible, um, and find one external customer who we can show that we can integrate inside of their team, start to build those relationships, start to build what you said of of the mind meld, which will allow us to essentially automatically organize them and then build that into a process that we can then. Uh, actually like and and into a platform which we can actually build a repeatable way to mind meld with customers um so they can just send us stuff and not have and and get rid of that stress of of trying to organize things uh then once that validation is done um then we'll essentially have not only a uh, an external customer in revenue but we'll also be able to price accurately our services for invisible um and i'm hoping to do that in the next couple of months uh and then uh, once that's done, then it's about repeating that and growing that and and finding more customers like that and making sure that we build a really interesting culture. Um, uh, so I haven't, I mean, long term, maybe one year down the line, then start to either, it is a question I'd be curious about your thing as well as 
So automation in the last month, I've realized how important automation is going to be, particularly given all these different things. And we have a whole bunch of low code and no code tools um, that maybe Invisible didn't have. And we also have Invisible's platform. Um, and I'm wondering what you think in terms of like that in, in integrating into Invisible platform, building our own no code, low code platform. Um, uh, what do you think in terms of Cosmos? Like, do you think um, uh, what it, what's your take on on this integration? Cosmos? We'll build its yeah. own its own like engineering and technology organization. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. if Invisible ends up um, uh, committing resources to externalizing its platform and or 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 spins out a technology business unit, or if Infinity starts another business unit, that's basically whatever. The point is, if there's a way to become a customer of the um, platform in a BYOL sense or a uh you know um open source use of use mm. of the platform, then we will. Mm. That interface does not currently exist. That API does not exist. Yeah. Um so uh we will be probably customers of Invisible in the traditional services sense. Uh, but in terms of literally using Invisible's proprietary technology, that that bridge has not been built yet. Mm. Um, but we'll we'll will we build our own proprietary technology? Yeah, you damn well better be sure of it. Like we're a technology company. Yeah. Um, but will we just like invisible, will we always buy instead of build when we can um uh, and just only build stuff that's unique? Um yes. that's really our own. Yeah. You know, yes, absolutely. Um, I think it's worth talking about whether I'm pulling my weight. Um, and we'll do it on the podcast here. Um, so given that I'm full-time. Uh, at Invisible, you know, as president, chairman, capital allocator, chief investment strategy officer, founder, and it's like a, you know, 12, 14, 16, you know, you know, hour day. And even though I, I, I had moments of much more balance this summer, it's still, it's still so hard. And even though Ben's doing a great job, you know, the whole leadership team's doing a great job. It's, you know, I, I, I complete 26 direct reports at the end of every quarter. I mean, sorry, not direct reports, indirect reports, uh, but like I still do their stuff on Lattice and I maintain those relationships on the leadership team. Um, say the top two dozen, you know, plus people at the company. How on earth can I like help you, you know? And, and, um, uh, and the, you know, this is a, I'm obviously um, setting up a, a, a softball question here, which is, um, well, uh, if I can't pull my weight with labor, can I pull my weight with capital? Mm. Um, and so what is our plan for fundraising, Stuart? Mm. Well, I, so, uh, yeah, and I'm, hopefully we can publish all this stuff. I don't think there's any reason not to, but, uh, but, um, uh, so, so two ideas. So we've got finding a customer and then we've got finding capital and the primary unanswered question to, for me so far in this, in this finding external capital. And I've started these, the soft conversations already to get immediate takes off, off of investors is the the a question I asked you earlier about what what makes this different from corporate VC, um, and so make it, what makes this cor different than corporate VC? If it is the same thing as corporate VC, they're going to ask like, well, well, how 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 are you going to make it different? Um, and so the key thing I'm getting at is that in order to find uh, external investors that really makes sense, uh, we have to have good answers as to the ownership structure um, for. Um, for, from of Infinity into uh, Cosmos, um, and from what I understand, it's a fifty percent uh, on Infinity, fifty percent on on labor. Um, and so, uh, if 
Infinity has such a high stake um, in this. Uh, what is the difference between corporate VC? Because corporate VC learned something early on in the 1980s and 1990s, which was you take a minority stake in something large rather than a majority stake in something that becomes nothing. Um, and right. so, uh, so finding investors who get why uh, why Infinity is different is going to be a very, very interesting thing to do. Um, uh, uh, that being said, I think we can find it. Um, uh, and we just need to have the right story in place in order to do it. Um, and the fact that Invisible is growing like crazy and also that we've in the relationship over the past six months have gotten through some of the primary hurdles. Uh, and if we can find uh, of proving this out and that if we can find this external customer, I think that external customer and validation inside of the market is going to be a very, very interesting thing. And then once we have that validation, then we can actually raise money on it basically. Yeah. Good one. I mean, I'll give you my version of it, which is that um, as soon as I can sell shares in Invisible to diversify for wealth management purposes and also to create a, a vehicle for shareholders who want to diversify alongside, um, I'm going to start putting my capital to work in the Infinity companies uh, and be the uh, primary capital sponsor. My family office, uh, which is also going to develop family offices as a service, Pendragon, um, in partnership with Infinity, is going to um, uh, invest in Infinity. And that investment will be larger than Invisible's founding investment. Invisible will roll forward its equity stake and Invisible can increase its equity stake at any time. And that that is being negotiated, um, led by Eduardo Tamraz, one of our board members. Um, and uh, and this is one of those things where um, because of conflicts, like I'm on both sides of the transaction. So I clearly need to, you know, uh, not negotiate it on Invisible's behalf. And so that's where Ben and Ben and Joe are taking the lead on behalf of invisible shareholders and Jess and Eduardo on the board are, are playing that role. Whereas, uh, you know, I am, I am, you know, on the infinity side on this particular negotiation once in terms of creating the spin out framework, making sure that um, when there's a change of control event, the price that's set is fair. The economics are fair. The shared service agreement is fair. The talent mobility agreement is fair. Um, and all that stuff is super kosher. And we're going to put it to a full shareholder vote. There's going to be communications around that. Um, but the um, uh, the end state is me putting my money, personal money, where my mouth is on this um, and uh, backing you up um, uh, through uh, investing in Infinity and Infinity investing in this company. That will then relieve the pressure of being the primary investor from Invisible. Invisible can then focus on Invisible and not be distracted by Infinity. Because again, Infinity is like a mosquito compared to Invisible as an elephant. And then Invisible's competitors are like Mars and Jupiter compared to an elephant. You know? um, <clears throat> Interesting. So, so, so like Invisible shouldn't be distracted by all these like, you know, Infinity um, uh, BUs. And, uh, and that's why Infinity should exist as a separate entity. But then the question is, who's going to fund Infinity? Mm. And the answer is me and any other shareholders that want to diversify into it and join me and any other investors who want to invest in in Berkshire Hathaway and Y Combinator having a baby, which is basically what Infinity is. <laughs> Infinity is like like Berkshire and Y Combinator had a baby, um, and uh, and the you know uh, that's the idea. Um, yeah. But the thing is, how can I do it if it's just a part time thing? And the answer is capital. Like I'm yeah. putting my labor. Like I'm a full-time at Invisible, I'm part-time at Infinity, yeah. but the thing that I'm putting to work in Infinity is capital. 
and you are full-time on the labor side, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And I know, I, so I the question that. is, what is, what is the, what is the uh, pro forma cap table? And the way we're thinking about the cap table, and we're, we're still getting legal advice on how to actually set this up, uh, but it'll be, I think, an opportunity to innovate on the corporate structure and governance and alignment is actually separating, making sure the Cosmos cap, cap table and the other infinity cap tables are sort of like um, two cap tables in one. There'll be a capital cap table and a labor cap table, and the two won't necessarily dilute each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, if you set them to both 50% of the company. Um, and so, for example, um, uh, if um, we then seek an external investor to come in alongside us to mm-hmm. share risk. So of the 50% that goes to capital, we end up only owning 25% of it, half of it, or 12.5% of it, half of a half. Um, and then we have all these other investors that are investing alongside us, setting prices and, and coming in and sharing risk with us um, and valuing it at higher prices. This is wonderful. Um, but we're, as capital investors, we're competing with each other for 50% of the pie, max. Interesting. Okay. And then on the labor side, you know, uh, I actually think there's an opportunity to divide again and separate between the CEO and the team. Yeah. So that the team, you know, is sort of competing with itself for 25% of the company and the CEO is actually tied to uh, time-based and performance-based insane milestones mm-hmm. over eight years as they build a multi-billion dollar company. And if they hit those milestones and they stay for eight years and they earn it, if mm-hmm. not, they don't. Mm-hmm. And that actually, I actually think that, and this is maybe a contrarian hypothesis, that in the early stages of a company, early to even middle stages of a company, it doesn't necessarily, it's not necessarily productive psychology to constantly be worried about being diluted, you know, to suboptimal outcomes as a founder, as long as you are, you have built in founder invest, you know, board, board alignment from day one. Mm. And that's, what's generally not true. Most startups have terrible governance for a yeah. long time. And then they're super misaligned with VCs yeah. and this is super aligned. This literally puts you and I on the same team and you're not afraid of me deluding yeah. you by putting in more money. Well, I can I'm, put in more money all day long, but it literally won't affect your stake at all. And that, that's a, that's the, that was my primary kind of subtle question in the back of my head is that as a CEO, as a founder, I'm getting involved with a somebody who has a high stake of control inside of my, uh, inside of my baby. And so that, and so far, that's just been on trust on you and trust in, in the other people involved. Trust matters, by the way. So does <laughs> reputation. Like, I don't want to, yeah. I don't want to fuck you because, all right, I just use the f bomb. Maybe you have to clean that up, or maybe yeah. we just put that out there. Who cares? It's like, all right, Francis Cust. Turns yeah. out, Francis is not Saint Francis. And by the way, during this episode, I had a whole guilt trip because I killed a bug, and I just, I, I like, I don't like doing that. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but it was a scary looking one. It looked like it could bite. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, the. Um, you know, it would be so, it is so advantageous to us, even if I was to be totally cynical about it and just, just is keep the ethics to one side. It's so advantageous to us to be the most founder friendly innovation company, like corporate innovation incubator company in the world. The most fan, like, you know, our infinity is counter position against my combinator. Mm-hmm. We think we've if invisible is a new way to, to run your business. Infinity is a new way to start businesses, yeah. new way to do business. A, a new way to think of businesses and create businesses. So um, I believe that generally speaking, when it comes to 
um, early stage startups, the best investment philosophy is to be the most aligned firm with the founder ever. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've come up with a model that is like actually eliminates almost every misalignment that shows up between venture capital investors and founders. Mm-hmm. I feel like a founder and I always want to like, like even to the point of like, I don't know, we're going to look at, we're going to look at all sorts of things. I don't want to commit to anything on the call here, but like, you know, I want to be, I want to be super aligned. Yeah. Well, that is very interesting and answered a lot of my questions. I'd love that we can do this on a podcast and so that other people yeah. can have the same answers to these questions. Um, totally. Which is, which is wild. Um, that feels like a good. What do you want to do on the next podcast? What, which one should we ta- tackle? I, well, I think should it's, it's realm. Should we get Genevieve? Should we get Mickle? Like, I think, be, I think it should be Mickle uh, personally. Right. Um, but um, Mickle and Stage. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll set that up afterwards. But yeah, it feels like a good time to wrap. Friday same time. Uh, let's just make sure next Friday same time. But let's see if we can do it in a way that like it doesn't conflict with the Lightning podcast. If we want to do both. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Cool. Well, uh, yeah, thank you, Francis. And uh, you can find more info on Cosmos at cosmic-knowledge.notion.site. I'll put that in the show notes as well. Um, and okay. anything anything else we should uh, let the listeners know about? Yes. If you want to uh, co-found the company with us, uh, apply by emailing organize at um, organize at thecosmos.global organize at the cosmos.global to um, become a client to invest in alongside us to uh, become an advisor or to co-found the company with us uh, we are going to organize all the world's information and make it universally accessible accessible and useful turning chaos into order yeah hey thanks for tuning into plain sight presented by invisible if you liked what you heard be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.